Support for An Honest Account comes from Moneybox, the award-winning app helping people save and invest for their future. Moneybox allows you to invest with your spare change, from your morning coffee to your bus fare, rounded up to the nearest pound. Moneybox offers a range of savings and investment accounts and makes it super easy to use. All you do is sign up in minutes and get started with just one pound. Join over 200,000 people saving and investing for their future with Moneybox. You can download the app today or head to moneyboxapp.com for more details. Please remember that with all investing, your capital is at risk. And thank you to Moneybox. Welcome to An Honest Account, a podcast about how money affects our lives, our work, health, relationships and more. I'm Rachel Revis and today I'm talking to Marisa Bate, the writer and women's advocate, about her experience of what it was like to wake up one morning and know that she lost nine grand as a result of women's publication The Pool shutting down earlier this year. Since we recorded our conversation, Marie Claire, where Marisa also worked, has folded into an online-only publication, and she and many other writers lost their jobs, which is common in this industry. So I hope that our conversation about guarding your money in this economy is timely and relevant. Thanks, Marisa, so much for joining me on the show. No problem. Dragging you around to my living room. Your lovely living room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, there are many reasons that I wanted to have you on, but I was really struck when I read that article in Underpinned about the pool. And I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about how the article came about and like your life circumstances leading to that point. Well, um, Jack, who is the editor of Underpinned, I think got in touch um, with me and I was a bit nervous about talking about what happened at the pool because I think when you're in the center of something you're worried about your perspective and perhaps it still felt a bit too soon um, but he was a great commissioner and we talked it through and and really that piece was meant to be a helpful piece that if I was going to go through the experience of losing a lot of money, of really feeling the sharp end of being a freelancer and all the insecurity that that can entail, that at least, you know, it wasn't going to be an entirely wasted experience and there would be, in some way, perhaps I could forewarn others. There were rumours circling that people weren't getting paid. So can you talk me through that bit and how it made you feel? When the rumours started circulating online... I did begin to think, you know, what else is going on here? And also, you know, their, I guess the business model they had they had built the pool on hadn't really evolved over those the course of those three or four years. So it wasn't completely obvious how they were going to continue to monetize the pool. Mm-hmm. You know, even though the audience was growing and exceptionally loyal readers. I mean, the pool, I think that was probably one of its biggest successes was how loyal and engaged the readers were. Um, There's nothing really else like it, I don't think. I don't think so. And I think the women who read the pool, you know, they they felt like 
they were really part of it. You know, it really felt like this almost collaborative thing because so much of our commissioning would come off the back of what readers had said. Or um, So, you know, when, when those rumours started, there was a bit of, you know, I did start to think, oh, you know, hang on a minute. But then at the same time, there was an announcement put out on Gulkana that the pool was moving to a WeWork in Morgate. And moving to a WeWork in Morgate is no cheap endeavour. And I thought, well, you know, they've got cash. This is just typical chaotic pool. There was a new director who obviously felt that, you know, he wanted to be in the city. Um, and up until December, I was still receiving money. So even though I had a, a backlog of unpaid invoices, I was still getting money in my account. And I was still getting um, promises from the editor at the time um, that money would be coming. And what else can you do, really? So. What else do you do? Um, and I, you know, I looked into the small claims court um, and actually, quite tellingly, um, a quite well-regarded journalist um, who writes for newspapers, I rang, she rang me and said, what's going on at the pool? And I said, I don't really know. I've been thinking about the small claims court if I can't get this money. And she said to me, oh, you wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't want to, um, you know, you don't want these things to come back to you. Well, burning your bridges. Right, thing. right, which in hindsight I think is quite remarkable um, advice and a real insight into how people survive and thrive um, you know, in this industry. And then telling Leela, sort of like a month later, she called me up again and said, how did, did you ever pursue that small course claim? Did you, you know, how did that come up? You know, how did that happen? Um, so I was also being warned by people I respected to kind of just hang on in there, um, bite your tongue. Um, and but, in the end, they owed what, 85,000 yeah, to writers? to writers, to freelancers. And that did not include what they owed to members of staff. Oh, didn't it? Wow. And that didn't include what they owed to um, people who had lent them, uh, investors who had, had lent them money, had given them loans um, in this kind of emergency period. So it, it was a disaster. And then kind of, you know, very quickly it became obvious that uh, they didn't move into the WeWork and uh, things wound up very quickly um, what was the moment that you realised you weren't going to get that nine grand? I guess in a way the moment came to me quite gradually because I'd sort of believe it and then I'd think, I'd think about that and then I'd think, no, no, that, that just can't happen. And then um, I think the moment there was, a, there was also, I received an, an email from the, uh, a woman who was acting as a kind of... Um, not sure, like a CEO who I had never met, who, who apparently had been brought in September. And she sent this email sort of saying, things will be resolved on January the 31st. And that was just this tiny slither of hope. That even, and even like my rational brain and the people I trust around me were saying, you've got to get, like, this is done. There was this kind of, oh, may, maybe, maybe. And I think um, when, when the pool folded officially... Um, 
And I really understood that as a freelancer, you're an unsecured creditor, which means you're at the bottom of a list. So, I mean, the pool had no assets. It had a few computers, basically. Um, but if it was to sell off, if a company folds and it sells off all its assets, it liquidates them, as a freelancer, you are at the bottom of who gets what. And there was a lot of people above us. And I think when it folded and I realised that um, I wasn't seeing that money, it, w- it was... It was I mean, devastating sounds very dramatic and I don't have small children and I don't have a mortgage and I live with a partner who, you know, could could cover the rent um, for a couple of months without me. But um, it was it was hurtful, you know, it was hurtful and it felt exceptionally unjust and it felt like I'd put in hours of work that were just wasted. Uh, and it has, you know, had a massive impact on my whole financial year, you know, starting a financial... I know that's not the actual financial year, but starting a calendar year um, on the back foot like that has has been um, very difficult, also hugely demoralizing. I think, you know, the shock of learning you don't have that money um, is hard. And I had to give up a few things and I had to borrow a bit of money. But it, it was more the long-term realization that I felt very... Um, done over, for want of a more kind of eloquent phrase. I felt that I'd been had. And at first, I was furious with myself. I was absolutely mortified with myself. I thought, God, how did you let this happen? Who lets this amount of um, uh, invoicing kind of stack up? And it took a while to actually sort of reframe that narrative and be like, well, actually, you know, there were a lot of promises made. There was a lot of money. There was money put into your account into right up until December. There was a lot of things said that made you think this money was coming. Um, so, you know, it was a real kind of process of trying to accept and understand what had happened, um, especially for a company um, that I felt so personally invested. It, it felt um, more than just like a job going wrong. It felt like this thing that I had given hours of my life to um, and had given me a lot, for sure. I, you know, absolutely had given me a lot. Uh, professionally, um, given me huge amounts. But I had also, in return, given a hell of a lot. I had just, had just, you know, totally, totally kind of tripped me up. And it feels, obviously, I would say this because I wasn't affected like you were, obviously, but it feels like a, a long time ago. Like, we've all yeah. moved on yeah. in a way, but it's funny to think it only happened in... January. Right. Yeah. So, how, what has that process been like since that time, and that's how you felt to today? Well, I think um, you you life moves on, really. You know, and you have to. And actually, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm never more productive than when my back's up against the wall. You know. So after you know, there was this initial like, oh my god, and then there was like, right, what are we? What am I going to do about this? And um, I just kind of went into overdrive a bit and um, tried to get as much work as I possibly could. Um, and, you know, it did take a t- you know, it's, it, take, it takes a while to kind of get over it and not be so angry and not be so hurt. And I guess now I'm not those things in the way I was. I, I still feel like, you know, there, there are things, startups can fail, that is the risk of a startup, but I feel there were a whole litany of events that... 
um, were caused um, unnecessarily or could have been handled differently. And I think that feeling of injustice will always remain. But you have to keep looking forward and you have to keep moving forward. And essentially, my life isn't radically different from how it was. And, you know, it's a steep learning curve. And that's no bad thing. You know, at the end of the day, um, if I had to go through that to learn to be a bit more savvy, then so be it. Did it make you rethink how you approached those jobs, like in terms of negotiating rates or asking for more? I mean, I wish. Uh, not, I mean, the problem is, the, po- the experience of the pool, you know, brought up a lot of bigger questions, I think, that are relevant to a lot of freelancers. And, and so much of it is about power. And so much of the reason that I wasn't, you know, ringing up the pool every single day, like I don't ring up anyone else who's paying me late, is because these relationships are so unbalanced. Um, You know, I I feel that I am so reliant on these commissioning editors to commission me again uh, for monetary reasons, for career and ambition reasons, that I do not want to be that person who is a pain in the ass or is, is in some way tricky or difficult. And that's completely unfair. You know, I've kept my end of the bargain. They have to keep theirs. Um, so unfortunately, I don't think it has made me this sort of, you know, I've had many experiences this year of essentially being ghosted um, by editors after doing work or... This year so yeah, far. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, recent at the moment I'm in the middle of a thing where I will only get paid on publication date but that publication date's been pushed back three times and I and you know I don't know many other industries this happens in where it is it is such an imbalance of power that somebody can ask you to do some work and then either just not reply to your emails or not pay you um, and yet I feel like I need the visibility of those bylines and I need the money and I need the relationship to maintain a a successful freelance career you know I'm not a I do not I am not a big enough name where I can say fuck you this organization I won't write for you ever again I've seen that personally when people get too big they don't like being edited they don't like this they don't like that but it just it makes them a nightmare absolute nightmare and I you know I think this what I learned from when I was at the pool, we were commissioning so much every day. The writers we used, some of them, there were better writers out there, but they were the easiest to deal with. They were the quickest. They were the most uh, responsive to edits, the, the most malleable, I guess. And that was just as valuable in a situation like the pool where you need something quickly and immediate and responsive as a fantastic writer who's going to get a bit shirty or is going to take, you know, three hours to email you back. And so I think that also informs me of, you know, my value as a freelancer is not just the copy I can turn around or the interview I can secure. It's how how good am I to work with? And yet, it seems that does not matter at all, the other end. You know, these people can be absolute arseholes, unprofessional, rude. Bad writers. Bad writers! Very bad, bad ideas that you write because you need 200 quid. But you're, you do it anyway. And not all, you know, you know I, I don't want to constantly sound down about freelancing. There's, there's amazing things about freelancing. And there are amazing editors out there. 
And I do know a few of them and they're fantastic to work with and they develop your ideas and they encourage you and all those things. Um, but, it, but there is this massive power imbalance, sorry. And I think, I don't know how, you know, the idea of even suggesting to a newspaper or a magazine you would pay me half up front, you know they would just say, well, that's impossible. They would just say it's impossible and they'd say it's impossible, I don't know, because of systems and paperwork and, you know, how the accounts team run. But, you know, I'm, there needs to be some kind of deposit for your time. There was somebody tweeting the other day about, is it okay if I've done the piece and is it okay if I now file for expenses? And the horror this person got, you can't ask for expenses. You can't ask after you've done the work. Were you mad? It's like, this is a perfectly reasonable request. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, this journalist has produced a great bit of, of work that took more than she thought, and she's not allowed to ask for, what, an extra 50 quid? Yeah, and it's all that thing of, like, rocking the boat. Don't rock the boat, because if you do, they might not come to you again. And that allows you to be treated often in a very unprofessional way. So coming back to your piece, um, which I mentioned, I, I love that sentence about feeling um, in the underpinned, you said that feeling of being grateful to be in the room. I think that sums up what we've just talked about. And I really liked the positive <clears throat> ending. And I, I hope this won't <laughs> yes, bother you. I'm not you. all demon gloom, I promise. If I read out this line, because I think it's great. Um, you are not lucky, you are talented with a good idea, great writing or whatever skill it may be. Watch your money like a Colombian cocaine baron because you have to be creative and business person in equal measure. Be agile, keep learning new skills, meet everyone you can, always take the coffee and mostly take it from me. The unthinkable really does happen, so be ready for anything. I love that, the Colombian cocaine baron. It's so good. <laughs> well, I think that's it, isn't it, actually? Um, you know, one of the, when I first went freelance, um, Will Storr, who's a writer I admire hugely, and he's also a very nice bloke, said to me, you know, freelancing won't work if you don't think about it as a business. You know, like if you think freelancing is just going to be sitting in a cafe writing some nice thoughts, you're going to sink very quickly. You know, he said, you really ought to treat this as a business. And I think creatives are typically quite shit at that. And don't think, and also don't think it's their job. And that often happens in publishing, for example, because you, editorial people are all sat on one floor and advertising and money people on another floor, and you literally don't see what's going on. But it, it, you know... How do you watch your money? Like, how do you physically, day-to-day, -day keep a tighter check on what's going in and out? Um, one of the most helpful things, actually, has been getting a business account. Right. Um, I have a, an account with a bank called Tide, and I can see everything that comes in, I can colour coordinate <laughs> different bits of it. Um, so I think having an app where I can instantly see how much money is in that account is as being huge. And just feel like take a bit more ownership of moving it around, putting it in places. Do you have a system for chasing money? No. Normally when I'm getting low <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh shit, uh, I need to... I need to. I mean, I have a uh, an invoicing system called Invoice to Go, which is good. It's not free, but it definitely keeps me in order. And it was very useful when it comes to the kind of doing your tax return. And I just give my accountant the passwords, and he can go in and see everything. Um, and that actually has a chasing mechanism on it. 
Uh, but I was once told that was quite aggressive. So <laughs> I've disabled that. Um, but that that helps me. I, I check in with that like three or four times a week and that will tell me sort of when I'm due payment and if a payment's overdue and how much by. And then I can start to think, oh, well, is this, a, is this the point at which I chase? And um, so, uh, yeah, these kind of this software and these apps to me are, are hugely important. And I think a record of everything because when the pool collapsed, um, what I instantly went to was a record of everything. And not only did I have my invoices, but I'd, I'd actually kept a handwritten in a notebook just the date, who'd commissioned me, what was the commission, um, had I been paid. And, and just having that in that moment felt reassuring because nobody could say, actually, we owe you this much, or we, you know. Um, Consistent system is good because I feel like my sense of injustice in not being paid only spikes up when I need the money. Yeah, <laughs> It right. should be straight away as right. soon as it's late. That yes. should be my trigger. Yes, But it seems, it, we've talked about that briefly, that emotional connection to money. Yeah, and I think you're either that person or you're not. You know, I think some of the, you can't, you should train yourself, you can train yourself, I'm sure. But I, you know, I know very organised people who, as soon as those 30 days are up, would be emailing. That is just not me. I, I, I'm, you know, I wish I was about 80% more organised than I am. Um, unfortunately for me, I only, you know, often not only do it, but have the confidence to do it when I feel the urgency to do it, you know. As a freelancer and having been through that experience, um, do you, do you, are you more cautious? Do you, in terms, I mean, this was 60% of your income and I'm really glad that you've said your life hasn't radically changed today, you're in a good place, but what is the long-term impacts that you've been, are, are you more cautious with buying things or? Um, I'm, I probably do watch my money a bit more like a Colombian cocaine dealer than I did before, for sure, you know? I don't believe I would ever find myself in that situation again. And I think I would also have perhaps now more confidence to have demanded more of the pool um, before I got to that point. Whether or not they folded, you know, even if they hadn't folded and they just paid me really late, you know, that was not okay either. Um the big lesson I took away from it is one I'm finding increasingly hard to practice myself, which is to diversify your income. You know, do not have all your eggs in one basket. Um, what is your current situation, if you don't mind me asking? Well, um, I'm currently doing two days a week um, in office at Marie Claire magazine. And that's a really nice gig. It's a really nice team. Um, but again, there is this sort of little warning bell not to get complacent, not to rely on this regular income. And I think the hardest thing for me is to kind of, I mean, I hate this word, but maintain the hustle, you know, even when things feel a bit more secure, because probably I was never more proactive than I was in the sort of two months <laughs> after the pool folded. But it has to end at some point. Right. It must be exhausting. It is exhausting, but I think, you know, I do think it comes back to, you know, what kind of Will was telling me about thinking of yourself as a business. If you were a business, you would have people in your business constantly looking at ways to grow the business. You would have people constantly thinking, okay, we earn this much, how do we earn more next month? Or where is there opportunities for growth? And you have to take this all on yourself. So I think it is about, you know, constantly, not all the time, but regularly, I guess, taking moments to be like, when was the last time I spoke to this person? 
do I know anyone here? How do I get into this? What do I want? And actually, um, all through this process, um, for, for a couple of years now, maybe more, I've had an amazing mentor. And she's very good at helping me. How did you do find that. a mentor? I need a mentor. This is this is the question I get asked the most, and I've actually turned into a bit of like a Jane Austen Emma trying to set people up, and it has backfired. So I'm certainly not offering my services. To me, it was it was very fluky. It was um, I met her really by accident because I was supposed to be meeting someone she worked with for an interview, and that person was sick, and she came in that person's place and I remember thinking oh I haven't really got time for this um I was at the pool uh you know and we sat down and it kind of was like an amazing first date where you're like oh my god uh, I could talk to you for hours um and then we sort of went our separate ways and um somebody had said to me you know I think you need a mentor and sort of as this was kind of about a month or two later and uh she said that to me uh, I was having a meeting and then um I went back to my off. I went back to my desk, and there was an email from this woman, and she'd read something I'd written, and she just dropped me an email saying, "I really like this piece nice. you wrote," yeah. and I was like, "That's a sign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I believe in the universe uh, giving you signs, and that's mm-hmm. a sign." So I just kind of bit the bullet, and I and it felt like I was asking her out, and I, which I would definitely advise. I started out by saying just one coffee. Not, you know, will you take me on for two years and see me through all my darkest hours? Yeah, um, but you know, could we have a coffee? Um, and, you know, she always says that she gets stuff from it, that she learns stuff. Um, Can you talk to her about your finances? Yeah, so I talk to her about everything. And mm-hmm. and crucially for me, she's not a journalist. She's not in the media at all. Right. And I needed someone with an outside perspective and a bit more of a business perspective than most of the journalists I know who could help me look at myself as not a brand because that makes me feel very uncomfortable but as an entity in which I can make money. So why did you say earlier that you, you're finding it increasingly difficult to diversify? Because at the moment I feel lulled into this false security that uh, working two days at a magazine is giving me. Okay. Um, and perhaps, you know, I also feel that freelancing is hard at the moment. You know, it feels like... Um, Budgets are getting smaller from commissioning editors. Competition is getting fiercer. Every day I see a brilliant, talented staffer announce they're going freelance. And so much competition. <laughs> oh my God. No, <laughs> I'm really happy well. for you, but I'm also yeah. quite scared. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm. And also witnessing how other people are generating income, which is not this traditional route, you know? So I feel. But all kind of related, do you mean like speaking and. Yeah, speaking or the media. setting up courses. I keep yes. seeing people are announcing they're running courses and there's part of me that feels that this this method of I am a freelancer I have this idea or this story I will come to you the commissioning editor I will pitch it to you you will say yes you'll give me money is is dying when I look at the people who are successful it all feels the other way around it feels like they've created something on their own a podcast for example or um a series of events and they gain an organic support and then they sort of sell it into something. And I just think there has, you know, I think that's another way of diversifying your income that not just not getting money from one media outlet. I just think it's when you younger, successful people are not afraid to go off and make something without the permission 
of a commissioning editor. Now, obviously, off, often the permission of a commissioning editor means a guarantee of money, and often you need the money to make the thing. But, you know, there is definitely an argument, I think, for now creating something you really believe is good and will re- um, appeal to others, you know, and invest your time in that and and then sell it. Um, and I And I think that is increasingly... So I think, you know... That's the thing, and I think that's quite a hard thing to do as a freelancer because time is money. You know? but I think what a lot of writers and other people would admire about the way that you do it is that you, on the face of it, at least because obviously I don't know the ins and outs, but it looks like you do so much work and make so much of your income from writing for publications we all know about. Whereas me, and I'm sure many others, do corporate work, writing for you know banks or whatever, and they they do pay better, but mm-hmm. it's not something you're necessarily going to shout about. Mm-hmm. Like, look, I'm so proud of this. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's work, and you're proud of it, but it's not glory byline. Do, do you know no. what I'm saying? But I think you know. Well, interestingly, you know, I've never had much luck getting corporate work or commercial work. Um, I find that very hard to get. I don't have much copywriting experience. Um, so I do a bit of um, trends work for trends um, agencies which I enjoy and and actually does pay well Um, and I have definitely written some strange stuff over the last year Um, (laughs) whatever the client wants yeah exactly so I do I find that side actually quite hard and I think it is really important that people talk about the commercial work they do because um, you know that is the reality for so many people that um, that is how they can write in magazines and newspapers. I think the Marie Claire money keeps me afloat, and that's how I can write. You know, for newspapers, basically. Did you you wrote in the article that you had to give up your co-working space? Yeah, that was. Sad. What happened with that? Did you? Did, <laughs> are you back that in that? I mean. It was, you know, I'd found this little um, space around here, actually, in um, Peckham. And uh, I was very worried when I went freelance about being at home all day and being lonely and being unproductive. And so I was going to this this place, which was kind of 10-minute cycle from my house. And it was nice, you know, it was a nice space. But it is an unnecessary, you know, when when you run out of money, you don't need that space. I have a kitchen table. Um, There are libraries. It's funny how we, I'm not judging that at all, but it's funny how we talk about necessary and unnecessary because obviously getting out of the house is extremely necessary. Yeah. Like, as you said, for your mental health, like, I totally relate to that loneliness. If you don't go out of the house all day, you can end up feeling... Awful. Terrible, yeah. And I think it makes you quite, you know, if I... If I've been a, if I've been on my own all day in my thoughts, my work gets a bit weird, a bit dark, <laughs> just a bit kind yeah. of like a bit, just a kind of bit left of centre. You know, it's like you need something to break your own weird spiraling thoughts. And I, and I like people. You know, I like being around people. Um, so yeah, I, but there are ways. I mean, libraries are amazing. The British Library, uh, if you're in London which now takes basically anyone, is an amazing place to go and work. Not you know? tried that one. It's but just it's so it's such a beautiful space to be in. Um it's I like silence, it's silent, you can get a coffee. You know, there are there are places you can go where you don't have to pay a certain amount a month. 
as you said, it doesn't have to be all exposed brick in the cafe in the flat yeah. white in your piece. And I think, Although I do look quite like exposed brick. <laughs> I think, you know, Instagram, I feel like, has a lot to answer for in many areas of our lives. But I think it's also responsible for this idea that freelancing is just this dream of an existence where you just like take out your MacBook and you just tap away and, uh, you know, and you're just living your best life. Yeah. And, um, you know, that it's just not every job has bad days. Every job has down days. And that includes freelancers, even if you've got the luxury of not having to go into an office and not have to go on a tube. And I, you know, one of the reasons I wrote uh, the underpinned piece and I'd written a piece for the pool about freelancing is because I was kind of sick of seeing sort of people Instagram pictures of their coffee next to their MacBook. Because I just thought, come on, this is, you know, what the f- oh, it just drives me up the wall. And, and this whole, because this whole message is that it's kind of so easy to do. And if you're struggling, you know, and therefore the message becomes, well, if you're struggling, then why? You know, and actually I, I, I was trying to kind of say there's a, there's a tougher side to it, which I think there is. What do you see as your financial future? It sounds cheesy, doesn't it? But given the fact that, you know, as a freelancer, it's hard to plan what you what you make and then when you get money in certainly my temptation is to squirrel it all away because you just don't know what's coming in so it's hard to plan but how do you see your financial future do you know what i mean it's made me realize i should possibly think about my financial future (laughs) um i get worried about pensions quite a lot especially when i learned that it could be even the case by the time that we come to draw our pension which uh with the pension age ever increasing at the moment that there isn't actually a state pension the state will not have money for the state pension, which isn't even really what many of us imagine living off in our final days. Anyway, you know, I do get very worried about um, a generation who, who not only do they not have pensions, but they don't have property. So they can't then sell and move into sheltered accommodation and live off their property money, you know, and will be living and working longer. So that, that definitely worries me. Um, but I don't have a solution to how I will deal with that. I, I definitely try and save. I spend a lot less on um, things now. I used to be someone who would just sort of whiz through Topshop quite yes. regularly Same. and come out with something with sequins on. Uh, and I do that a lot less. And that's partly because I think of our awareness around the climate crisis, but also... Um, you know, money has become this big feminist issue to me. And I guess it always was before I even really sort of put a label on it, whereby, you know, I want to be independent. I want to be secure. I want to be able to know that if something went wrong with my partner and I, I would be financially okay. And there was a, there was a kind of statistic from um, an investment bank called Fidelity that came out last week that said a, th- a, th- a third of women would not be able to cope financially if their partners left them or they left their partners the following day. And I, I desperately think there needs to be this kind of, kind of almost sort of revolution in educating young people about what their financial future would look like and how they achieve it because we're going to have less and less help from the state. Um, things are harder and harder. So and I th- you do write quite a lot about <clears throat> domestic violence and I've seen you write about economic abuse and how you know, victims can be trapped. I mean, I know we're taking it to one end of the spectrum here, but it starts that way, doesn't it, and works its way up? It's, for me, it's all connected. Yeah. You know, that is the extreme end of the spectrum. 
But one way of combating something like economic abuse is the same way as, you know, saying to a 21 girl, you don't have to stay with this boyfriend that you don't love that much. He's not particularly bad. You just don't love him anymore. But you don't think you can move out because you can't afford to. It's the same thing. It's like if you have this knowledge and this, this knowledge will, be, will help you become more secure and independent. And therefore, with that security and independence, you will be able to make better choices for you. Um, and I, you know, I really... Someone once brought me a Ms. magazine, which was like Gloria Steinem's feminist magazine in the 70s. And on the back, they, there's this advert that they've got this Ms. magazine pensions advice kind of club. You know, there is an inherent feminist message here that you know, educating yourself about your finances will make your, you know, is, is the best thing for you. And I, I wish I, even though I've always had this sort of strong desire to be quite independent, I wish I translated that into money quicker. Or you know? even action. Because as yeah. I say, I feel like I have all this knowledge, but am I acting on it? Because it, yeah. it takes a certain amount of discipline and motivation. It does. it does. And I think, you know, we're of a generation where everything feels a bit hopeless. You know, you could save... I could save for the rest of my life. I still wouldn't be able to buy a house, you know? So at the moment, there's this kind of overwhelm as well. What's the point? Because what you're actually going to get, um, you know, where's it actually going to lead you? What's the point? If I'm not going to have a house, why don't I spend this money on this nice holiday instead? So I, I totally get that. And I think, you know, I think as a big conversation to be had that perhaps we're still chasing these sort of status symbols that aren't apparent anymore, you know, saving for a house isn't isn't relevant. What are our priorities now? What do we really want? And maybe if we understand that, then we might be more encouraged to save for them. So is it that you want to be able to not work for a month a year? You know, as a freelancer, wouldn't it be lovely if you just took August off? Well, how do you save for that? And I just think it's about connecting our emotional needs and our ambitions and our kind of personal goals with, with a, a kind of monetary awareness. Um, and I've come at that way too late, you know. <laughs> um, Haven't we all? I, yeah. That's why I'm here today. <laughs> That's why we're here. Um, would you say you, how much would you say you're driven by money? Um, a lot, you know. I, I mean, clearly not that much because I went into trying to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, if I was completely driven by money, I would be working in the city in a suit and earning four times what I do. So arguably I'm not that person. But equally, um, increasingly, I want to be able to go on a holiday once a year. I want to be able to afford to go to friends' weddings, you know. I want to um, have some savings. And that's really important to me. And, I, you know, that conversation, I think, has been happening more recently of people, and I guess especially women, um, kind of owning their ambition around money. I think, you know, there's, it's kind of a dirty word around creative people anyway, but I think especially with women, we kind of have had this weird idea that, you know, if they're, if they're just seeking money, they're some kind of cold, heartless bitch. <laughs> um, and actually, you know, until we live in some kind of socialist utopia, um, which I don't, <laughs> given yesterday's, uh, uh, given, you know, Boris's behaviour, mm. I don't think it's happening anytime soon, you know, we need financial security. And so um, I I think, you know, there's no harm in um, being driven by money. And for me, it's not so that I can 
buy, you know, an expensive handbag. It's so that I can, you know, sleep a bit more easy and, you know, go on that amazing trip. You know, that is important to me. Yeah. I hope you don't mind if I mention your mum because it's <laughs> you tweet about her quite a lot. I mentioned her quite a lot. Yeah, I think that's that's really lovely. And I wondered if you um, talk to her about what happened and does she what her approach is to money compared to yours, like throughout you know generations. Yeah, I mean she she um, I guess it's quite contradictory really because actually you know we grew up with not much money and uh, she had to kind of find money out of nowhere a little bit and she struggled and she would save and make every penny um count when she was bringing up me and my brother on her own and she would do things like you know literally never you know not take a bus for a year and save that money to help towards my university fees and that kind of absolute discipline of making her money go as far as it possibly could and she'd make my school uniforms because that was cheaper than you know all that kind of stuff so I definitely saw that but then it's this kind of not so secret sort of radical in my mother who ah, the number of times she said to me fuck the banks (laughs) she's so angry with the financial system and and the government and everything else Mm. and there was this there's you know whenever I went into a top shop with her which has been quite a lot in our mm-hmm. lifetime, it was never like, oh, are you sure you should be spending that? She was like, yes, you'll regret it if you don't. So there was this kind of weird mixed messaging where it was where I'd watched her sort of make magic with money. And then, but I'd also, she never wanted the lack of money to hold me back, you know? And that was always her message. And even though when I got to university, you know, my first summer at university, I had three jobs and I worked all the way through. I mean, I had a job since I was 14. Even though I understood that I always worked to get money, I'd, I'd always spend it as well. You know, so there's kind of slightly yeah. contradictory, um, I guess, in, in what I learned from her. Um, I guess she's been very much someone who's, who's taught me that money isn't the be-all and end-all, you know, that, that the experiences are, are more important. So before we end, is there maybe one positive or practical thing you would say to someone because we talked before about it being too late I'm sure it's not too late for us but for someone maybe someone who's younger perhaps like what would you say to them about guarding their money like a baron or whatever I think it's just um taking your head out the sand like it's just knowledge like you know knowledge is power and it it is it's just it's it's just having the courage to look at your bank statements because there were whole years when I didn't do that and look at your bank balance and just to know, you know, I don't, you know, yes, you can download an app and yes, you can try and write down your daily budgeting and yes, you can never buy a pret sandwich again and, you know, all that. But I think it begins with just understanding sort of your financial situation properly and not just hoping you get to the end of the month but really recognising sort of how the money works, how it comes in, how it goes, you know. And I think that is the place to start because I did that far too late. And if I just had a bit more knowledge, who knows, I might have a, a bit more money in the bank. And if I did, we might be sitting in a very different room. <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much, Marisa. It was thank a great Thank you so much. And next up, I'm speaking to Becky Aldridge of Neon Financial Planning who's going to help me answer a listener's query about what she should do with her savings given she wants to move house in a few years' time. 
Hi, Rachel. Thanks again for coming back on the show to help out. Um, This listener is called Holly and her question is, I want to move house in about three years time and I've just received some inheritance. So between my husband and I, including our savings, we now have around £85,000 in cash. Okay. Uh, She wants to know what is the best thing to do with money until we move house? My mortgage is my only debt and we have an emergency fund already of six months, bills not included in that, not included in that 85,000. We've just had a child. We plan to have more children. I also plan to go back to work. So we will have significantly larger outgoings with nursery fees and therefore there is a limited opportunity to save in the future. And I've, she's listed, Holly's listed a few options there about what she could do with her money, including pay off the mortgage, open a stocks and shares, ISA, any other opportunities. So the big question is, what does she do with that money if she wants to move in three years? Mm, okay. So um, so there's a couple of things that uh, jump out at me when I'm listening to that question. The first is, um, I want to say, well done for having an emergency fund. <laughs> so, you know, not very many people have a pot um, that they can turn to in emergencies. It's really, really good to hear that uh, this listener is doing that. Um, the second thing is then about the time frame. So normally when we're thinking about um, decisions to make with money, um, we sort of separate it out into short and long-term planning. And the short term sort of covers the one to three year time frame, which is what um, we've got here with Holly. So we need to think about that. She sh- she certainly shouldn't be thinking about um, tying her money up in anything that she can't get it out of, um, because a three-year time frame is not um, enough to be able to withstand any um, really nasty volatility that she might have in an investment. So listening back to that question, I think the things that are... Um, highlighted for me are she's thinking about using some of this money to repay the mortgage that she's got. Now, she's given us the interest rates um, in this uh, message, and I won't say what they are, but um, they're, they're not very high. So she's almost certainly going to make more from her money if she has it in a really high interest savings account compared to if she repays some of the mortgage. So that's not the case with most people. I must say, she's just very lucky that the interest rates are very low. So, I mean, she could repay some of it, but financially, she's probably going to be better off, even if she just has it in a in a savings account, she's probably going to be better off doing that. Um, so she'd have to thing, compare, she'd have to compare the interest rate then with a savings account and decide if that's worth it to make more yeah, money ex- on that, on her own money in that time. Exactly. So if, for example, you had a mortgage interest rate that was 1%, which some people do have, and you know that your savings account will give you 2% with no risk at all, you know, you're not going to lose your money in a bank account, um, then it makes financial sense, doesn't it, rather than repaying the debt. Um, Having said that, some people just like to repay the debt anyway, because it makes you feel better. But financially, um, you know, in this case, you could make more from the savings account. The other thing is that she's going to move house in three years' time. Now, she hasn't said whether she wants to buy a bigger house or a more expensive house, but I'm going to assume she does, particularly as she said, I think, that she wants to increase the size of her family. So I'm assuming more rooms, more children, a bigger mortgage is required. If she repays some of this mortgage now, there is a risk 
uh, that she's not going to be able to borrow the same amount again later. Um, for whatever reason, the mortgage market might change, her job situation might change, anything like that. So I think if there's, bearing in mind that uncertainty, I think um, I'd be inclined to say to her to think about not repaying that mortgage for the time being um, and just keeping the money in savings. I mean, it's, I obviously don't know her situation in detail, so this isn't, you know, she can't sort of just go off this uh, this call um, to make her final decision. But that's my that's my leaning for her anyway. Is there um, what about the fact that you can you can try and pay off some of your mortgage early, and then sometimes you think you could end up with a better interest rate if you do that, or even put it in a you can get mortgages where you have a certain amount in a savings account, and that can be used to offset the mortgage. That wouldn't factor in here. She'd just still be better to put it in a higher interest savings account. No, Rachel, you're quite right that those things are all factors. I mean, that's that's the reason why financial planning is quite complicated. And answering questions like this in a, in a sort of two minute window is really, really tough because it's not taking into account the whole situation. Um, if this caller has an offset account, she's probably going to be more worthwhile having her money in that offset account um, because it will essentially reduce the amount of the mortgage but she'll be able to borrow it back again when she feels like it so and, and equally she could um if she was just on that situation where her mortgage interest rate was um just into the higher rate band so maybe if her uh, mortgage was 76 percent of the value of her house and it would reduce the interest rate would reduce if she got it to 74 percent of the value of her house or something like that you know that might be worthwhile doing as well you're absolutely right you know these are these are top things to be looking at um yeah it's quite a complicated decision but the easy part is thank goodness there's an easy part here is that with three years to go in locking it up in a new investment just isn't a good idea is that correct I think for most people, it wouldn't be a good idea unless they're the kind of person that wants to take a punt. You know, I, I think something that some people think, and I think maybe even Holly mentioned it in her message, is that there's a feeling that you need to be locked in to an investment um, for a period of time. Something I wanted to clarify, actually, is that you don't normally get locked in to an investment. It's just that they go up and down. So you normally want to be investing for at least two or three years to manage the fact that it might go down by 10% before it goes back up again. And the longer you have something, the more likely it is to have made you some proper money. But with only three years, that's right on the, the cusp for me. So it depends on the kind of person she is. Okay, so Holly, if you're listening and you're willing to take a punt, uh, then yeah, that's, that's good advice. Um, thank you very much, Becky, again. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on all your usual platforms. You can tweet us at honest underscore account underscore. We're also on Instagram at an underscore honest underscore account. Or you can email us at contact at an honest account dot co dot uk. Thank you to Moneybox and see you next week.